0: Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Fine print, fine print. Does anyone here like fine print? I hate the fine print. If I get a new credit card and that whole booklet comes with it, I throw that away. If I... Uh, you know, if I buy something new, I assemble it. I don't look at the instructions. Um, I, uh, I took my son to a trampoline park yesterday for his sixth birthday. And what are you met with at the door? A waiver with fine print. I didn't read it. I signed it. I just went on. I said, kid's going to jump. Kid's going to be kids. Let's do this thing. Um, I, I did get bitten uh, by fine print. Um, my first job out of medical training Um, I realized, or I shouldn't say realized that, I learned after the fact that the person who writes the contract gets to define all the terminology. And so if there's a word in there that means this in regular life, it might mean that in legalese, and you might end up repaying some of your salary at the end of your time because you didn't understand that. I, I didn't know that was a thing, but now I know. I hate the fine print. Paul is essentially asking the Galatians, you who want to be under the law, have you read the fine print? Do you understand what you're signing up for? Let me give you an explanation. Now, if you've been with us, I hopefully you have, you know that we're in this letter. Paul has written to a church in Galatia, a church he himself planted, a church that was established on this message that the access to God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, having started so well, what would cause these Galatians, these Gentile Christians, to turn back to something else? Why would they even be tempted to look to access God or come to God in a different way? Well, if you know from hearing the other sermons there, a group of men came from Jerusalem, which was at that time the seat of Jewish thought and religious influence, They were known as Judaizers because they wanted to turn Gentiles into Jews. They came and said, look, you guys got this Jesus thing and that's awesome. But, you know, there is a prerequisite for this class. That's the law of Moses. Maybe Paul didn't tell you. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he's leading you astray. Here's the thing. We know all about the law and about Judaism and the observances and the feasts. And you need to get on this train because you missed something. Now, anyone here had to go to school and Take a class, but the class had a prerequisite. Maybe you've been to college. Maybe if you've thumbed through the college directory, you'll realize that calculus one is a prerequisite for calculus two. And that makes sense. There's some foundational principles in calculus one that you need before you can go on to the next level. The Judaizers were saying the law of Moses is a foundational principle, and you can't get Jesus or do this Jesus thing right unless you have the prerequisite. Paul comes in and he's like, look, guys, it's true. The law of Moses did come first, but Jesus isn't just the next level of calculus. Jesus is the diploma. If you have Jesus, you have already graduated. You have come into all the access to all the benefits of going to the school. You don't need to go back and take calculus one. Amen. Amen. Anybody who took calculus one should be like really excited about this. So I'm gonna have a confession for you. I have this recurring anxiety dream. I don't know if you have these. Maybe you're falling, you can't stop. Maybe your teeth come out and you're like, ah. In my dream, I'm in college. It's the end of the semester. I have not been to class. I have not read the textbook. I have not written any term papers. I am wandering around a building looking for a classroom tucking my head in. No, that's not it. Is this the one? No, it's not it. And I know that there is a final exam coming, but I don't know when it is and I don't know where it is. And I am freaking out. And then I wake up in a cold sweat and I am so relieved because I remember that not only did I graduate college, I actually have two degrees beyond college. I don't have to go back to college. And I don't have to take another test again. That feeling is what Paul is trying to give the Galatians. Whatever fear you have, whatever anxiety you have, whatever burden you have that you think you need to do something to get access to God, guess what? You already have access to God. You have all of the privileges of the person who has completed the course. You do not need to go back. Amen? Amen. So, in order to make this argument to the Galatians, Paul takes them on a deep dive In Jewish history and theology. So we're going to do that today. All right. You may quickly feel that this sermon is like the lecture in my dream and you want nothing to do with it. Right. Strange people in strange places at a strange time doing strange things. Why are we bothering with this? I feel you. That's how I felt when I was preparing it. Okay. But here's the thing. We believe that all of scripture is God breathed and beneficial for teaching and for edification, and we preach the whole Bible, so we're not going to shy away from this, Um, and we believe that even though this text was not written to you, it was written for you, that there is something in it that we're going to try to draw out from God to bless you today, and by his grace, we'll be able to do that. Sound okay? All right, so I'll ask you to bear with me. We got two history lessons and then the payoff. All right, number one, Abram, or Abraham, as he comes to be known. God comes to Abraham and says, I am going to bless you. I'm gonna start this new thing on earth and you're gonna be the beginning and it's gonna happen through your children, so I'm gonna give you a son. Now, Abraham was 75 when he got this and probably I would've been like, you got the right guy? Like, I'm 75, bro, like, I don't know if that's gonna work. But no, Abraham trusted God and God accepted that trust or that faith and said, okay, Abraham, I, you know, I'm going to give you a position of honor and prominence because you trust me and we're in relationship together. Let's do this thing. So now if you read the text, there's fanfare, there's visions, there's like stuff happening, supernatural stuff happening. and So you think that this kid, this child of promise is like coming tomorrow. It's going to be off the chain. And it doesn't happen. Now, I don't know how long you would have waited before you got nervous or started questioning God or whatever. I think I could have gone one or two years pretty well, maybe three, and then I'd have been like, all right, Lord, um, I know how babies are made. I wasn't very good at it for the first 75 years. Uh, I'm kind of struggling here. I mean, I'm doing everything I know to do. You need to show up. To his credit, Abraham gets to about year 10. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, 10 years from the promise, no child. Sarah says, look, Abraham, I have this servant. You know, the text says Egyptian slave. So her name is Hagar. Maybe you two can get together and you can produce this baby that God is talking about. Maybe that's the plan, okay? And it works. A child is actually born, conceived. Now, it's easy for us to say, I'm waiting for this thing, I'm believing God for this promise, nothing is happening, maybe I need to do something different. And maybe we come up with a plan and we kind of get involved, we want to help God along, whatever the thing is, and then it it works. At least in our natural mind, we look at it and we say, yeah, my job changed or my situation's improved. Like, praise God, it's worked. Well, that's probably a bad assumption. At least this story tells us that. Because even though God doesn't say much about it in the moment, he does show up later to set the record straight. It's Ishmael thing that you guys are doing. Actually, that's not it. I got something different, something better. So just an aside, I'll give you this one for free. If you want to get involved, you want to change things up. Don't assume that just because you did something and something happened that it was from God. All right. Now, there is an elephant hiding in this text and I'm looking around. I see some families. I'm going to try to keep this PG-13 because this text is not PG-13. There's a man, Abraham, who has a wife, Sarah, who has a slave, Hagar. and slave and the husband get together and they have a baby. Now, there are a lot of ways to think about this and I want to be thoughtful, but the very best, most unbiased term I could come up with for this arrangement is sexual exploitation. And that's problematic, all right? Often when you come to a text, especially a historical text, bad things happen, and there's not a lot said about the badness of the thing. And we assume that means that God condones this or that this is a, some sort of license for people to do whatever they wanna do, and that's wrong. A good historian is going to observe an event and they're going to write it down. They're going to give you the details. They're not going to put all this commentary in it necessarily. So if there's a war and military comes in and they slaughter, kill, massacre a bunch of innocent people, they're not necessarily going to give you a lot about the ethical impact of it. They're just going to say, look, this is what happened. Innocent people not involved in the military died in the midst of this situation. And then it's for us to try to understand or unpack. So I want to say very clearly that I do not believe that this text condones the abuse of power and this mixing and intermingling of these ethical problems, sex and power, right? I believe that, in fact, God is on the side of the marginalized. The texts and the other texts tell us this very clearly. Um, Now, Jewish rabbinical tradition would say well, Hagar was a slave and it was actually quite common for slaves to become surrogates to produce an heir if the wife could not produce an heir. Okay, it was common. Doesn't mean that it was right. And then they might say, actually, Hagar's social position within Abraham's house was elevated by the fact that she became the mother of the heir. So she would have been you know, in favor of this plan. Maybe. The text doesn't tell us what she has to say. Not in this moment, at least. We see that there are problems that come up later. And my confidence that God is compassionate actually is this. In the midst of this messy, broken situation, God comes to Hagar twice, not once, but twice to hear her complaint, to meet her in her time of need and of struggle and of confusion and to bless her, which is proof that God is one who listens to those who are suffering. In fact, Hagar gives God the name, you are the God who hears. Even after she has been pushed out of Abraham's house in a position of whatever prominence that she might have gained, she, she, she comes away from this situation with that lesson. God is a God who hears. All right, the other thing I would say about it is that, in fact, if you look at Abraham's life, his whole life is morally problematic. He repeatedly lies, he lets these kings take his wife away, doesn't say anything about the fact that they're married. He splits with his nephew over a financial dispute, and while his nephew ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah, if you know anything about that, you know there is a problem. This text is not a text about the righteousness of Abraham winning over God and God saying, Abraham, my man, I need you on my team. It is actually a story about God's grace and faithfulness triumphing in the midst of all this brokenness and sin and evil. And I'm so thankful that God can triumph in the midst of brokenness because my life has some morally and ethically questionable things in my past. And I need to know that God is not deterred from working in my life in a miraculous way that I do not deserve because of my bad decisions. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's move on. Back to the main point. Hagar gives birth to a son. His name is Ishmael. Abraham is thrilled. Sarah, not so much. What does God do about it? Well, he does come 13 years later. Ishmael is a teen. uh, And God sets the record straight. Why at this point? I don't totally know. Maybe it's because Ishmael is 13 and he's like, at that bar mitzvah age, and he's maybe stepping into adulthood, and God wants to say, actually, this is not the son who should come out from the guardian and receive the inheritance, if you remember what we've talked about in the past, but instead there is a son to come. And that son is gonna be born of my, not human effort, but of my God's promise and spirit and power. But Abraham's like, but I like this son. I mean, he's, I love him. And so God says, okay, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. This is Genesis 17. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him. I will make him his own nation, which God does. Um, but I will establish my covenant, that is, my relationship of grace, unmerited favor, with Isaac, not the, not the firstborn, but the second. And um, Sarah will bear him to you. Okay, God is one who delivers on his promises. Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab people, a great nation. Isaac is born miraculously to Sarah and becomes the son of promise, the son of inheritance, the son of freedom, however you want to think about that. But eventually, Hagar and Ishmael are forced out because what does the text tell us? The son of the slave woman shall not inherit inherit with the son of the free woman. And so God, in order to establish Isaac as the true son, Ishmael has to... Come out. All right, that's the historical background, history lesson number one. Still with me? I hope so. Uh, If not, it's too bad. (laughs) Now, let's look at our text Galatians 4, verse 23, 24. But the son of the slave, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, that is human effort, while the son of the free woman, Sarah, was born through promise. Isaac is born through God's promise and God's spiritual activity. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. Oh boy, here we go. Paul is setting Hagar and Sarah in contradistinction. Verse 24, one is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So why is Paul making connection between Hagar and Mount Sinai? Two main reasons. The first is that Mount Sinai, as he says later, is in Arabia. Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab people. Arabia, Mount Sinai. So there is a physical, biological lineage connection between Hagar and Ishmael and Mount Sinai because that's where the Arab people lived. Secondarily, Paul says that it's on Mount Sinai that the law of Moses is delivered to God's people who have come out of slavery in Egypt. And this is a covenant based on human performance. Blessings if you obey. Curses if you don't obey, and this is more human effort. So we have Hagar, we have Ishmael, we have Mount Sinai, location, but also its importance in the history of the Jewish people. The law is delivered there. And then he goes on to connect all of these things with the present day Jerusalem. Why? Because it is the seat of Jewish thought, Jewish religion, Jewish practice, the home of Solomon's temple. Everything about Judaism arises from Jerusalem. So that's the first connection. Now, Paul is trying to draw another lineage within Abraham's house because Abraham had two sons, and that's Isaac. And so then Paul goes on in verse 26 to talk about um, the Jerusalem that is above. And he says that the Jerusalem that is above is connected with Sarah and Isaac. Uh, It is free, like she is free and he is free. Isaac is the free son who inherits the house. Ishmael was the slave son who did not inherit. Now, I have a chart here. I'm trying to help you see this. So the Judaizers who emphasized Judaism and human effort and uh, approaching God through the law, he's saying, Galatians, you got to recognize these guys are on the wrong side of the equation. Right? They're connected to Hagar, who was a slave, to Ishmael, who was a son, didn't inherit anything, to Mount Sinai, where the law was given, to present Jerusalem. And they are the children of the present Jerusalem because they're approaching God through effort. All this is human effort. You guys, because you're the Galatians, you received Christ, you're on this side. Sarah was free. Isaac is a son of promise produced by the Spirit's power. He he fulfilled a covenant of promise. Uh, The Jerusalem that is above is also free. And you are children of the Jerusalem above. Why? Because the scriptures tell us that those who are in Christ have their citizenship in heaven where the Jerusalem that is above is. And actually, Paul is connecting to this idea uh, we find more fully explained in John the Apostle's revelation. And John has a revelation. He has a vision, basically, of the end time. And what he sees is that Jerusalem, the heavenly city, comes to earth. The abode, the living, uh, dwelling place of God, is now among people. And that the children of that heavenly Jerusalem are more in number than anyone can count. Because they come from every tongue and every tribe and every nation and they gather around the throne to say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And so the only way that that could be fulfilled is for access to God to be opened to the Gentiles. Because otherwise the people around the throne would only come from one nation, the Jewish nation. But John and Paul are both pointing to this idea that there is a future reality of Jerusalem where it will be have children, citizens, from every people group all over the world because God has done this, okay? And so Paul is essentially saying, do you want this legacy or do you want this legacy, all right? Now, in order to draw this out even further, Paul goes turns to um, Isaiah's Prophecy, Isaiah 54. So we're going to do history lesson number two. There was a time when the people of Israel who were relating to God under the law, blessed if they obey, cursed if they disobey, experienced a great punishment for their disobedience. They were exiled. The Babylonian nation came in, sacked Jerusalem, carried the people away. Uh, Sons and daughters slaughtered in the streets. I mean, bad stuff. And the people are now in exile, in slavery, in Babylon. And Isaiah comes to them with this prophecy that makes absolutely no sense. He says, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who were never in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What are you talking about? And Paul, why are you bringing this in? I mean, I thought this text was hard enough with Abraham and Israel and Ishmael and Isaac and all that kind of stuff. All right, to try to help you understand this, this prophecy is a prophecy about the restoration of Jerusalem after the exile. Now there is a immediate sort of um, fulfillment of the prophecy. Paul is essentially saying to women who are in exile, if you've never had children, You should be relieved. Why? Well, your children weren't lost in the midst of this exile. They haven't been taken into slavery. They haven't been maybe killed and left on the side of the road. I mean, again, it's a bad situation. He's also saying God will restore Jerusalem and he'll bring the people out of exile back to the nation and, and reestablish the nation. And in that moment, the new Jerusalem on earth will have more prosperity than the former. Okay, well, we can all get behind that. I mean, we're mourning our exile and we're pretty unhappy about this situation, but we can look forward to what God might do and maybe that will, you know, spark some faith in us. But then you add this sort of third layer, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, that the children of the heavenly Jerusalem would be more in number than the children of the earthly Jerusalem which is essentially another way of saying that Abraham had a son, Isaac, he produced a great nation and there were a lot of Jewish people and that was a fulfillment of God's promise. But the greatest fulfillment of God's promise will be that day when all of God's people throughout all the ages and across all of the earth are gathered together and we see how great the spiritual lineage, the spiritual family of Abraham really is and people will stand in awe and their mouths will drop. Like, wow, look what God has done. And so Paul brings this in so that he can make this point again. This spiritual lineage, Sarah, Isaac, um, the new Jerusalem, the children of the new Jerusalem is so much better than anything that the Judaizers are offering you. Okay, history lesson number two fulfilled. Paul, Paul had a specific... Commission from Jesus to reach the Gentiles. And so you can understand why his emphasis on how the new covenant, the new work, the spiritual lineage of Sarah and Isaac in Jerusalem is better because he doesn't want the Galatians, his own spiritual children, to abandon what they already have and turn back to something that is lesser. Here's the point. You can write this down if you're of the type. Faithfully relying... On our relationship with God by His Spirit frees us from the slavery to religious performance and ritual. This is why God passed over Ishmael, the product of human effort. This is why God chose Isaac, the product of God's own spirit and power. This is why the Mosaic law is weak because human effort could not achieve it and left us enslaved. This is why it has been replaced by Jesus, the power of God for salvation, on display. This is why the Judaizers are wrong, because they elevate human effort and human institutions. And this is why the Galatians are at risk, because they may forfeit what they have in Christ to turn back to something that would enslave them faithfully relying on a relationship with God through the power of his spirit frees us from slavery. So where is Paul going? Land the plane. Verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, you are children of promise. But just as at that time, the one who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that is, Ishmael, wanted to be the son of inheritance and had animosity towards Isaac. In the same way, these Judaizers who are in this lineage of effort are persecuting you, Galatians, trying to rob you of the freedom that you have in Christ. There are modern day Judaizers. There are people who would come to you, pastors, preachers, evangelists, religious persons, and they would say, my way is the right way. You must come into my fold. You must give to my ministry. You need my anointing to get to God. They are a barrier to your freedom. We would never want to be a barrier. I would pray that I could only ever be a ladder, helping people to see the sun better, reach higher and get, gain access to God. But you don't need me. You need the Spirit's power. Paul ends the text saying this. Brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. After providing this explanation, he reminds them that Abraham had two sons. Now, you might realize that the Judaizers made a huge deal about being biological sons of Abraham. But Abraham had two biological sons. And the question is, are you an Ishmael's son or are you an Isaac's son? Now, there's an interchange between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day that I think will bring this into focus. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, John 8, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We're children of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that we will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. There's more than one kind of slavery. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And if the son sets you free, then you are free indeed. Do you see the connection between Ishmael and Isaac? Ishmael, the slave son, did not remain in Abraham's house. And these sons who are in slavery to the law cannot remain in God's house because they will not inherit with the free sons. There is a son of Abraham who came much later. His birth was foretold many years in advance. He was born conceived of the miraculous power of God. He was offered to God as a sacrifice, and he has inherited everything in the father's house. And his name is not Isaac. His name is Jesus, He is the true son, the son who can set you free. And so if you are a Gentile and you are enslaved to sin, only the true son can set you free. And if you are a Jew and you are enslaved to the law and religious principles, only the true son can set you free. Paul does not want the Galatians to miss the fact that there is one true son and only he can set them free. And if they turn back to any other way to reach God, they would forfeit the son and enter again into slavery. His argument is one based on identity. He says, you are already sons and daughters. You are already beloved. Your position is secure. You have all the rights and benefits of an heir. Why would you go back to slavery? Do not forfeit your destiny. The lineage of Hagar and Ishmael and Sinai and the law of Moses is a dead end. And I mean that literally, it is an end of death, slavery to sin, but the legacy of Sarah and Isaac and the power of the spirit is a life end. The end is life. Maybe you're here today. In fact, I would have you all stand as we close. Maybe you're here today and you spent your life laboring under the weight of rules and expectations. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what's expected of me. Have I done enough? What if I miss the mark? Step out from under that yoke and receive the unmerited, undeserved favor of adoption from God. A daughter does not choose her family a son does not earn his position. Only grace can make you an heir in your own family and in God's family. Maybe you're on the outside of faith and you're looking in and you're thinking, but I feel the weight of all these things that I've done wrong. All of my mistakes, I carry these with me in my past and the hurt and the harm. I need, I need to find a way to clean myself up and get this off of me. Give up the pursuit. You cannot do it, only the true son can make you a co-heir. He wants to share his inheritance with you. Can you believe that? Jesus Christ for the joy set before him endured the cross. Why? So that the heavenly Jerusalem and the children of the heavenly Jerusalem could be more in number than those that came through human efforts and the biological lineage of Abraham. Maybe you have seen firsthand the drudgery of religion. And you're like, who wants that? Get me away from that. There are modern day Judaizers, religious guides who would put themselves between you and God and make themselves critical to your faith. You can sidestep them because grace has been made available to all. In the name of Jesus, there is joy in this relationship. Uh, I I think about my children. When I come home from work, my kids greet me at the door. This is the greatest blessing, the greatest compliment that I could ever receive. My children are standing at the door. They know there is a goodness on the other side, a good father, a warm embrace. They are not content with a side hug on my leg. They wanna be caught up into the bosom. There is a perfect father who today wants you to experience the goodness and the joy of your adoption caught up in his bosom, delighting in you because you are you because He made you, not because of what you've done, not because of what you've achieved, not because of how well you hold to the rules, there is joy. And if your experience of faith is not marked by that joy, there's an invitation to you today. I would invite you to come forward, come during the song, come during communion, come at the end for prayer, whatever you do, please, please, please do not leave this place relating to God like a servant or a slave because the slave will not inherit with the free son. You can be a free child of God and you can experience it. God wants you to be more, God wants to be more to you than just an intellectual good. He wants to be an experiential good today. Let's pray. Father, the text was heavy and hard, but I thank you that the truth inside, is that you are a father of love, that you want to embrace your children, that you have already given us all of these benefits of being heirs of the house, Lord God. Would you make it real to us? We open ourselves to you. We take our eyes off of ourselves and we put them on you today.